Okay, let's um, bow our hearts as we come before God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who tells the end from the beginning. That, Lord God, you are outside of time. The word says you inhabit eternity. And so, Lord, you don't see things as we see things. You see things, Lord, completely. Lord, we see things just as through a glass darkly. And we don't understand all the details of where we're going. We can't see tomorrow clearly. But Lord, you know, you see it ahead of time, Lord, for us. And Father, we just pray this morning as we turn and start now this study in the book of Revelation, you would help us to understand the things that you have revealed of what is going to come, what is about to happen in this world in which we live. And Father, that you would fill us with a sense of urgency to reach out to those who are unsaved, to share this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ that we have. And so, Father, stir our hearts this morning, we pray. Help us to come to know Jesus better through your word. We ask in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. So we have the privilege of being able to start a new book this morning. And we're going to start, as you said, to go through the book of Revelation. The title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Just such an incredible book. It fills some with a bit of kind of fear and trepidation. Some think it's a very difficult book and hard to understand. And a lot of Christians tend to avoid it. A lot of churches won't teach it. I know many years ago, um, the Anglican Church had a meeting. Um, I believe it was down in Brighton. And we happened to know an Anglican minister in the town where I used to live. And he'd been to that conference. And he said at that conference, the Anglican Church took a decision not to talk about or teach the book of Revelation. Because they considered it too divisive. They considered it too challenging. It presented too many questions. So they steered away from it. You may be aware that many Catholic Bibles don't have the book of Revelation in it. So it's a challenging book in one sense. But as we'll see as we go through, God didn't intend it to be so. Of course, you, uh, I'm sure, are familiar with the author of the book of Revelation. Everybody know who wrote Revelation? God, that's right. Yeah, and who did uh, who did God give it to? Jesus. Yes, that's right. And who did Jesus give it to? An angel. And the angel gave it to John. Yes. So, so you said John four times there, but that's the 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 way this book was delivered. It was delivered from God to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel then gave it to John, and John is the one who then records these details. We find, of course, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, so much of this book we find kind of focuses on, or at least from our point of view, we tend to think about Antichrist and Armageddon and the end of the world. But it's the revelation of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the central character of this book. This book is all about Jesus. And that's why it's so important for us to understand it. You know, the book unveils Jesus in all his glory and majesty in a way that had not been seen before. And if you're about to get married, it's kind of a good thing if you get to know the one you're about to marry. Well, for us as a church, the Bible says we are the bride of Christ. And very soon our bridegroom is going to be coming. So it's good for us to go through this, to get to know Jesus better. You see, the last impression of Jesus the disciples had was seen at the ascension. They knew Jesus as this friend that they'd walked the shores of Galilee and the, the hills of Judea. And they listened to his teaching. And they seen Jesus taken and crucified and buried and then risen again with this incredible new body. But they didn't really understand or see Jesus in his glory. Now, John has the privilege of seeing his friend in a way that he could never have imagined. Without this book, of course, the Bible wouldn't be complete. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings, but Revelation is the book of endings. It ties everything together. It foretells the end of this order of things, i.e. The, the way the world is at present. It tells us how this world is going to change, what's going to happen. It also foretells the end of Satan's rule on planet Earth and the end of this false religious and political systems. It kind of ties everything off. It clearly shows the destiny of the church. It gives us the destiny of the nation of Israel and the destiny of all unbelievers. It ties together all the Old and New Testament prophecies and leads into an eternity with Jesus enthroned as the universal King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, as I said, 
in regards to all the ship, the writing of it was done by John the Apostle. There's a few people that question that, but really there's no substantial reason to reject John. Uh, there's so much in favour of understanding that John was the, the individual that wrote this. He was the last living apostle at this time. He'd been exiled to the Isle of Patmos by Emperor Domitian. This emperor had not uh, liked John. He'd been trying to kill Christians, didn't like them, thought they were spreading a story that was potentially a, it was damaging to the, to the Rome to talk about this king, Jesus, who was going to come back and judge the world and so on. And so the, the story goes that Domitian had John exiled to Patmos. Apparently he was unable to kill him. What we understand from history, there's a number of uh, individuals that write about this, but Tertullian, one of the early church fathers being one of them, wrote that so Domitian had taken John, they placed him in a vat of boiling oil, but miraculously he didn't burn. So not knowing what to do with him after this, John is exiled to Patmos. It was a very bleak, remote island, one of the Greek islands. And not particularly big, about six miles by ten miles, but he was left there to mine um, whatever was on the island. Later, Domitian was uh, assassinated in 96 AD. That gives us an idea of the kind of time frame that we're looking at here. And most scholars recommend or reckon that the the writing of Revelation took place somewhere around about 94, 296 AD, while John is clearly on this island. After the exile, John himself returns to Ephesus as pastor. Arrhenius writes about this and a number of others, uh, Clement of Alexander, Eusebius, and a number of other uh, writings we have from the, the second and first century record these details, as well as obviously that which we have in Scripture. And he stayed in Ephesus until his death. Now, there is this myth surrounding Revelation that it's a hard book to understand. A lot of people avoid it because of that. Now, that is a lie from Satan. If Satan has propagated that it's not for today, that really we don't need it, we shouldn't read it, it's just going to confuse us if we do. You see, and a lot of people just come to that place of understanding, and certainly many denominational churches have the view that it just depicts a battle between good and evil. But we shouldn't really take it literally. You know, that every other book of the Bible we can take literally as such, but of course we reject the early chapters of Genesis and we reject the, the book of Revelation. I got a book some years ago, it was called uh, How to Read the Bible. And it was a great book. It went through talking about taking things in the context of their return and you take things literally and another, unless it's clearly intended otherwise. And everything was great until we got to the book of Revelation and the, the two authors that had written the book went totally against everything they've said, all the principles they laid down, and said regarding Revelation that, oh, well, it's just a, it's picture language. It's just a, uh, idioms. They're referring to other things. And of course, many have fallen for that. Again, many have been deceived to think it's too hard to understand. You know, there's too much imagery and mystery and so on. Well, it's true, there is some imagery in Revelation. But you see, all the symbols point to a literal truth. Now, there are various interpretations. Um, and really this, again, I believe has come about as a work of Satan. Uh, there's two books in the Bible that seem to be attacked more than any other. And of course Genesis, because it's the book of beginnings, it exposes Satan as the deceiver of the human race and predicts that the Savior will be victorious over him. And then we've got the book of Revelation. It's the last concluding book because it records in advance his destiny and ultimate defeat. And Satan hates these books. And clearly throughout the history of the Bible, these books have been attacked but one of the interpretations we have is something, and you don't need to really worry about these terms, but I'm just going to share them with you in case you bump into somebody that has these positions. The preterist view. Now, this is a view that suggests all the prophecies of the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the early church prior to AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Well, the fact that the book was written after that time kind of really dispels that. And of course, there's so many things in Revelation. It speaks about the return of Jesus. And so many other events that clearly hadn't taken place by AD 17. So, it's fairly simple to dismiss that position. There's another view, sometimes referred to as the historical view. And the theory suggests that all the prophecies are being fulfilled throughout history. And that we're now in the millennial age. It's just kind of an ongoing progression of things. And again, that view completely misses the whole point of the tribulation. It's God's wrath on this Christ-rejecting world prior to his return to set up his kingdom. So that view, and there's a number of people that would describe that, it just really has no basis in Scripture. 
And you can dig into these, you can see where these things came from historically, and I'm not going to bore you with all the, the historical details, but you may have heard of phrases like amillennialism and so on. Actually, they're very dangerous views. A lot of people hold to them, but they're not scriptural. And there's the spiritual view, which some hold to, and it just simply it doesn't take the ideas and the symbols in Revelation as representing anything literally, but rather spiritualizes everything. It tries to, again to make it that good and evil kind of thing. Now, again, the real problem with that view is that then it's open to everybody to interpret it how they want. It's, you know, there's no way we can come to a unity of the faith, things that Paul speaks about, if you can interpret it differently than someone else, because we've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Otherwise, it's just up to us to come with our own opinion. Well, then there's the view that some people call futurist view, which really just speaks of the fact that the prophecies in this book, and the majority of them, are yet to be fulfilled in God's appointed time. Now, that's the the view that we hold to, that I hold to. It's the one that is consistent with everything else we find in the Bible. And really, it's the only view that allows the Bible to interpret itself. It doesn't require me to try and interpret things, because the Bible itself becomes the rule that we use to interpret. You know, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and there's over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. There's almost two allusions per verse to the Old Testament, to quotes and references from the Old Testament. It's amazing how intertwined this book is with the rest of Scripture. 404 verses, 22 chapters, and I said... 800 or so illusions. If you want to look at those or list of those, in Chuck Misler's book, Cosmic Codes, he's actually got a list of all of those references. There are more names and titles given to Jesus in this book than the whole of the New Testament. But the title that we see most often in this book is The Lamb of God. 28 times in the 22 chapters we find Jesus using that title of himself. There's 17 scene changes, as it were, from heaven to earth, because a lot of what John records are things that are happening in heaven. But then he also records things that are happening in earth. So we're kind of bouncing backwards and forwards to that which is going on in the heavenly realm and that which is going on on earth. And so we need to be sensitive to those things as we go through. There's 44 separate visions that we find. The word like appears 22 times describing something, like wool. Now, it doesn't mean it is wool. It means it's something that looked like or had the appearance of wool. Again, it doesn't mean it is. And this is where, you know, we have these types and shadows and things that are used. But it's quite easy. We use that in our own language so frequently. We use something to describe something else, something we're familiar with. The word as appears 65 times. Again, it's describing something. So, for example, as dead. That doesn't mean that he was dead. It means he was as dead. Had the appearance of or... Looked like he was dead. John says 35 times, I saw. So John is trying to do his best to explain these things, which must have been mind-blowing, that we're going to go on and look at. So lots of imagery, but John just talking about the things that he saw, he witnessed these things. The word behold is found 26 times. So again, it's really just drawing our attention. He's like, listen. That's what behold really means. He's like, okay, stop. Take note of this. This is important. The word great appears 72 times for a number of different things within the book. It really is a great book. It's just implying the the magnitude of this overwhelming experience or something that, that John was just really trying to find words to express the things he was seeing. And again, we should mention, this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for reading it. Now, of course, you'll be blessed by reading any book of the Bible. But we are specifically told that there is a blessing for reading it. So as we start to read this as a fellowship, we can look forward to the blessings that God will bring to us. We can spend a lot longer going through many other things, but I encourage you if you want to, there's lots of good commentaries uh, on the book of Revelation. If you want to know some of those, I'll uh, gladly suggest some for you. But let's sort of get into the book itself, because that's where we're going to find the real meat and the excitement. Just to give you a quick breakdown, chapter 1 starts with a, a prologue and introduction, if you like, and really the central theme of the book is announced to us. Then we just get a greeting, a salutation. And that really comes from John and from the Lord. Then we find we have this incredible vision of Jesus, verse 9 to verse 18. And we find there's eight characteristics of the glorified Christ that are given to us there. And then the book ends with John's commission. What God was actually asking John to do in terms of recording these things and what he was to do with the things once he'd recorded what he was seeing. So, let's begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must surely come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the first thing, the revelation of Jesus, we said, the book is about revealing Jesus in his glory and his majesty. Now, the next thing, notice here, God has given to him, and the reason is to show unto his servants. So all this nonsense about, oh, it's too hard to understand, it's not for us, whatever, is straight away in the very first verse of the book dealt with. Because the reason God has given this book is to show unto the servants of Jesus Christ things which must shortly come to pass. That's the reason it's been given. So to suggest that we can't know or shouldn't know is really ridiculous. God has given this book with the express reason that we should know and understand. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4 makes the comment that we are not to be in darkness. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ should understand. The things that are going to come upon the world shouldn't overtake us. As we look at what's going on with situations, with things such as the Pope's remarks recently, such as what's going on in the Middle East, things that are going on with ISIS. As Christians, we shouldn't think, oh, what is the world coming to? We should know exactly what the world's coming to because God has revealed it. And as we go through this book, hopefully we'll get a much better understanding of what God has already revealed. And we'll start to see all these things falling into place in the world around us. First Corinthians 14.33 also tells us God is not the author of confusion. God didn't give this book so that we would be confused. He's given it so that we would know. So the book is intended to be understood. Now notice that this is a show unto his servants. The word there is this Greek word, doulos. It means bond slave. It really comes from that idea that we read about in Exodus 21 verse 6, where a slave who'd worked for a master and then was at the end of that period of uh, serving would be released. And yet, if the servant decided they wanted to stay working for that master, they could go and willingly have their ear pierced. Typically, they put up to the doorpost and they'd have their ear pierced. And it was a sign of marking that they'd chosen to serve their master willingly. A Jewish, a bond slave. Somebody who willingly wanted to serve someone else. Well, that's what is said of us here. See, God has given this revelation to Jesus to show unto his bond servants, those that have willingly chosen to follow him. It's a lovely picture that's painted. It's really those who have identified through sacrifice. In a sense, giving up the right to rule their own lives to their master. Well, that should be you and I. We're also told that this is given to servants to show things that must shortly come to pass. It means quickly, rapidly. You know, really the idea here is that when the things mentioned in this book start, they'll not stop until all is done. Because some people will say, well, look, it's shortly come to pass. It's been 2,000 years or 1,900 years since John wrote this. Not particularly quickly. No, the idea is that when these things began, it will all happen very, very quickly until it comes to a conclusion. Well, you just look at how the world is changing. I mean, even in the last five years. You know, five years ago, would you have thought the world is where it is now? There's so many things going on. You know, I remember hearing Barry Smith, the New Zealand evangelist. Some of you may have heard him. I got the opportunity to meet him. He stayed with us a couple of times when he was over in this country speaking. And I didn't agree with everything he said. There was a couple of issues theologically or in terms of the timings that we had some interesting debates on. But he was a wonderful man of God. And he used to speak and he went all over the world talking about the one world government and a one world currency and how the cash would cancel and so many other things. But you know that this year in a couple of Scandinavian countries, cash is cancelling. They're doing away with money. You know, I would have never believe that back then in terms of the fact that you couldn't see it happening and yet now it's happening we've heard people tell us that the Pope would try and bring about or the Catholic Church would bring about a one world religion many people were sceptical and yet as we've seen even this week the Pope has now put this prayer video out calling effectively for a one world religion saying that we're all worshipping the same God yeah, look how quickly things are going now also, we should note that in this very first verse we're told that these things that are shortly going to come pass, we're revealed in this book and we're told that God has sent and signified it by his angel unto John. Signified just means by the use of signs. 
That's exactly what this expression means. Now, Hosea chapter 12 verse 10 says, I've also spoken by the prophets. I've multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. It's like a model. If you were to construct a building, very often they'll build a scale model in advance. Uh, near where I, I work in London, um, there's a, a place and they uh, do lots of building and planning and so on. And they have this incredible um, little model layout. Uh, it's almost the size of the, of the room we're meeting in here, of, of London, little models. And they, of course, uh, from an architectural point of view, they'll do these little models in advance to see what something's going to look like. Well, in a sense, that's what God has done. He's given us models in advance throughout Scripture. God here has given us signs in this book. Something to point us to something, to help us to understand it. The reason that signs are given is so that we will understand. So the question is, do we interpret the book of Revelation literally or symbolically if there's signs? Well, the answer is both. So how can you interpret Revelation both literally and symbolically? Well, it's very simple. You find out what the symbol means and then believe it literally. It's really as simple as that. It's not complicated. You see, a signpost on the road is only of use if it points to something literal. You see a signpost, it's pointing you to something, but the something it's pointing you to is real. As a signpost would be no use whatsoever if it pointed to something that didn't exist. Or if it pointed to something that was just a concept. It would mean nothing. Now the signs that we're given here are pointing us to something that we should be able to understand. And these signs are given to help us to understand. Now, this is an interesting thought here, because we're told that he sent a signified by his angel unto his servant John. Now, in Revelation 19.10, this messenger, because in the Greek the word angel simply means messenger. That's what the Greek word is. It's shown to be a, a brother or a fellow believer. So this messenger is a fellow believer. We read, and I fell on his feet to worship him. This is the being in question. And he said unto me, See thou, do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, that I have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, says this individual, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, also we read in Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9, that this individual was also of the prophets. He says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I... Uh, had heard and seen, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And this is quite interesting because it really kind of begs the question, who is this messenger? Clearly it's not an angel as we would imagine an angel. The scripture reveals angels like Gabriel and Michael and so on. Because this angel, we're told, is a brethren. He's one of the prophets. He's a human being. I just pose a question. Could it be Daniel? Why do I say that? Well, just think. What do we know, or what can we deduce about this particular individual? We're told that they were a fellow servant. They were a brethren. They were a prophet. Seemingly an Old Testament prophet, of course, because John did not recognize him. Of course, all the apostles, no doubt, he would have known. So they were already in heaven when John receives this vision. Daniel, incidentally, is also a picture or a type of the church. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a wonderful picture. Remember the situation with the fiery furnace? Where is Daniel? Nowhere to be seen. That picture of the fiery furnace is Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael to give them their proper names to glorify God rather than those Babylonian names that were given to them to glorify the Babylonian gods. Those three individuals are thrust into this furnace. It's a type of the tribulation. We've got this world leader that's having everybody worshipping him. That's a type of Antichrist. And those young Jews, those Jewish men, are thrust into this furnace. Very much like Israel, we go into the time of tribulation. But where's Daniel? Daniel's not there. He's taken out of the way. We're not given any reason why. Very much a type of the church that will be taken out of the way before that time of tribulation begins. Daniel was also given prophecies about the last days. If you want to understand the last days, then really, Daniel and Revelation are two of the key books you want to look at and study. Incidentally, though, Daniel was also the only other individual in Scripture that's called beloved by God. That phrase applies to three people, three groups in a sense. It applies to Daniel as an individual, to John, and to the church. So I just pose the question, it's not doctrine, just an interesting thing, that whoever this messenger is, they're not an angelic being as we would think of an angel. They're clearly 
one of John's brethren. It's another human that God has appointed to reveal and show these things to John. So it's just a thought, but it's quite interesting, isn't it? But we carry on verse 2. Speaking of himself, John says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus and of all things that he saw. So John's adding his personal comment that this is a true record of what he saw. John, of course, had previously given testimony of Jesus in his gospel. And now he's been called by the Lord to give this testimony as well. We're told, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now there's three blessings here to note. Firstly, blessed is he that reads. Simply by reading this book, you're promised a blessing. That's a good thing. But we're then also told that they that hear. So it's not just reading it, it's understanding. It's hearing what God is saying. And then finally, and keep those things. Literally, the, the, the idea here is those that keep their eye on the things that are written. That's what it's saying. If you look at the Greek word that's there, it's keeping your eye on these things. It's being vigilant, expecting these things to take place, being ready for them. And there's a number of other scriptures that speak of blessing for those who have loved his appearing. There's a crown promise for those. So again, this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing simply for reading it. But the other two blessings are there as well. If we understand it, and then keep an eye on these things. Also told that, that this is a book of prophecy. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now that's interesting because it's just silence those who try to allegorize its contents. Because quite clearly here we're told it's a book of prophecy. It's telling us about things that will happen in the future. And from this verse, we can quite comfortably deduce that the whole book is prophetic. That which John is about to give, the Lord will reveal to him, are prophecy. It is prophecy. In Revelation 22, verse 8, it's confirmed as well that this is a book of prophecy. Now, of course, this means that chapter 1 is prophetic. And we'll look at it. Chapter 2 and 3 will also be prophetic. And chapter 4 to 22 will also be prophetic. And I will show you why I'm making those distinctions when we get there. But the whole book has a prophetic tone to it that we need to be mindful of. And then we're told that the time is at hand. Literally, the time is ready to start, ready to begin. Thus, that which is prophesied is to begin straight away. And we'll see that the things that are prophesied began straight at the time that John received this and obviously then returned to Ephesus. The fact that the prophecy is taken up to the end of this present order means that the scope of this prophecy really goes from the first century to the end of the age. So then we get to verse 4. That's the introduction. We now get to the greeting. And we read John, calling himself by name. Interestingly, in uh, John's Gospel, he never really refers to himself by name, but here now, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Why seven? Why seven churches? Well, seven in scripture is used to denote completeness. We've got a number of things that we can see. We've got seven days in the week. Seven notes in a musical octave because the eighth note is a repetition of the first note, but just an octave up. So we actually have seven distinct notes. We've got seven colors in the rainbow and so on. So even in the natural world around us, seven is a number that seems to denote completeness. And throughout scripture, certainly it's used that way. So there's something complete about these seven churches that John is told to write to. It's interesting because there's a number of churches that are omitted from the list. And we'll talk about that more when we get into actually looking at these seven churches specifically. But Jerusalem's not included, Antioch's not included. There's seven specific churches that God chooses. They represent the complete church from, again, a prophetic perspective because we've been told that this book is a book of prophecy. Just to give you an idea of where these are, this is the Mediterranean Sea, for many, of course, with Italy and Sicily. And then we've got this area here, Macedonia, and then down to Greece, as we know it, right around here to Philippi. And then this area here, which is today in Turkey, this is Galatia. Remember, we were studying the book of Galatians recently. But it's this area here, like on the uh, southwest 
uh, edge of Turkey, really. You've got these seven churches, and we'll go through them all in detail. Um, but you've got there uh, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Ephesus. So those seven churches that sit in that group there. And, of course, Israel down here, Jerusalem down the bottom there. So that's the area that these churches are located in. Now, John says, To the churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace. Now, this is interesting because this expression, grace and peace, is used 17 times in the New Testament. There cannot be real peace without God's grace coming first. You see, it's God's grace that gives us that peace that passes understanding. But when we know God's grace, we experience his peace also. And we're also told then, grace and peace be unto you from him which is and which was and which is to come. This greeting is not only from John, but from God himself. No doubt has instructed John to give this greeting, that God is sending this greeting. And then we're told, of course, that God is outside of time. He's which is currently, which was, and which is to come in the future. God is outside of time. He's the one that inhabits eternity. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 tells us that he knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 57 verse 15 is the verse that tells us that he inhabits eternity. Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. This idea we find throughout scripture. And then we're given this interesting comment, this and, this greeting is from John, and from uh, God the Father here, clearly, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now this is an interesting one. Who or what are these seven spirits? Now, the idea being conveyed, again, is completeness. We've already seen that that seven has reference to completeness. Now, we have this expression four times in this book, so it's possibly helpful to look at them. We're told this first time that these spirits are before the throne. In Revelation 1-4, we've just seen that. In Revelation 3, verse 1, we're told that Jesus has the seven spirits of God. In Revelation 4, verse 5, we're told that in heaven there are seven lamps burning before the throne which represent the seven spirits of God. And the seven spirits, we're told in Revelation 5 verse 6, have seven horns, which would seem to indicate complete strength. And seven eyes, complete vision. So, we're still with this question, who or what? Are these a angelic being or a form of angelic being? Or a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Now remember the context that we're given. John is given us an introduction and a blessing from God the Father, verse 4. We'll see in a moment in verse 5, and Jesus Christ. The blessing is grace and peace. I would argue that an angelic being is not able to give that blessing. So I would conclude that this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that's in view here, seen in his unveiled form. Just as we get to see Jesus in this chapter, Unveiled. So I think we get to see the Holy Spirit unveiled. Now interestingly in Isaiah, chapter 11 and the first three verses, we find this. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. And a branch, clear reference to Jesus Christ, shall grow out of his roots. And we're told, firstly and number one, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The idea in the Hebrew there speaks of comfort. Well of course we know that's one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit. He's come to give us comfort. The spirit of wisdom, we're told. The second thing. The spirit of understanding. The fourth thing is the spirit of counsel. Fifthly, and might. The sixth thing is the spirit of knowledge. And finally, the seventh, the fear of the Lord. Seems to give us this list. Now some would question it, but it clearly talks about the spirit of God. It's speaking about attributes of him, and we're given seven attributes in this list, so it may well be these seven spirits that we're seeing, but clearly it would seem to be a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting as well that we've got seven churches, and again the seven spirits. Is there a connection between the seven churches and the seven spirits? Well, they're both in the same verse. It's interesting that they're kind of put together, right into seven churches, and then we're told about these seven spirits. Or if you like, seven attributes of the Spirit. See, each one of the seven churches is only one of the whole. I think that's interesting, you know, because today we've got many different types of churches, haven't we? And it all works in different ways. There's no one church that suits all. You know, we would love everybody to come to our fellowship here. 
But you know, there's people that would find what we do here too much. It might be too heavy for some people. They might not like the style of music. You know, there's some churches where you go in and it's quiet. You hear a pin drop. But there's an incredible awe and reverence for God in those places. And there's something wonderful about that. I remember growing up being in a church that you walked into church and nobody spoke. You just sat there. And many people would pray before the service. And there's other churches where they're just so exuberant in their worship and you can't deny that the Lord has used them and worked through them. It is not a one church fits all. God works differently with different individuals. And we can't say that one's right and the other's wrong. Of course, we should insist on sticking to and keeping to the word of God. That's got to be the foundation. But the other things that surround that, the style of the way we do things, well, it's different for different people. And I think it's just interesting as well. Through the ages of the church, the Lord has worked differently. You know, throughout history, you know, we've seen different eras where God has done different things. Now, we're going to see as we go on and look at the seven churches, they very clearly seem to represent the seven church ages we've had up until now. And God has dealt differently with those churches. Now, is there a connection, therefore, with the way the Spirit has dealt with each one of those as they've gone through? Because another thing that we know from Scripture is that the Spirit has been given to the church as an eternal companion. So there's an incredible link and tie-up between the Holy Spirit and the church. In chapters 2 and 3, seven times, one for each church, we're going to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But the Spirit says something different to each church. And yet, everything is applicable to all. So we'll enjoy looking at those things that the Holy Spirit has to say as we get to chapter 2 and chapter 3, which of course we won't do today. But John now continues his salutation. Verse 5, you've already had now this greeting from John, from God the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and now from Jesus. And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing, the faithful witness is mentioned, is a, a term used to describe Jesus. Well, Jesus came to show us the Father. John 14 verse 9 tells us that. John 18, 37, we read there, as Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus was a faithful witness to the end. We're told also that he's the first begotten of the dead. This phrase really means that he was the firstborn. Just as Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits of them that slept, those who had died. So here we're told that he's the first one born of the dead to never die again. Of course there were others who'd been raised. We've got a number of individuals in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. We know that Lazarus was raised from the dead. But they all died again. Jesus rose from the dead to never die again. He defeated death. He was the first one born from the dead to never die again. And the rest of this portion, we're given these fivefold grace of Jesus unto us. We're told that he loved us. What a wonderful statement to start with. That Jesus Christ loved us. He loved you. He loved me. He washed us from our sins. He also purged us from our conscience because we're told it was by his blood. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear That it wasn't just a sacrifice like the bulls and goats, which would make atonement for sin, but it was by his blood he's purged our conscience. So no longer do we feel guilt for sin, so that we're now a new creation. He's also given us this position of kings. He's placed us above every other power. That's you and I. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you trusted him for your salvation, you are royalty. He's ordained us priests unto God. This is a wonderful thing. Because we've the privilege that the, the Levites had. We've been called to minister to the Lord. You know, whatever your daily occupation, whatever takes the time up, you have been called to minister to God. That is an incredible thing. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that haven't. 
But you have. Okay, this phrase, kings and priests unto God, is interesting because John is writing this greeting and he borrows this from chapter 5, verse 10. Now it's interesting because the greeting seems to have been written after the revelation. Because John is going about his daily business, he sees Jesus, as we'll mention in a moment, but then he's given this revelation. After he's written it all down, he's got to write this introduction, he's got to put the preface to this revelation that he's received. So he borrows from something that he's already seen and uses it here in his introduction. Now I'm just going to, a little bit of a teaser really, because John is clearly speaking to the church and he says he's made us kings and priests. Now when we get to chapter 5, I'll refer back to this because it's an important point that we need to draw out. But very clearly here, John is saying he's made us kings and priests. We move on, behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. So John now concluding this salutation, this, this greeting, and it almost has his writing, his blessing from himself, from God the Father, from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus, and almost he just kind of explodes here, just with this amazing, overwhelming sense of trying to communicate what he'd seen. And he says, behold, he comes with the clouds. Every eye shall see him. That will surprise the atheist, won't it? And they also which pierced him. Well, that's a reference to the Jews. And we're told all the kindreds, all the tribes, it's translated in some versions, all the tribes of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Matthew recalls, then every, then shall appear at the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then should all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew writing his account effectively to the Jews. You see, at the time of the second coming, Jesus is going to return to defeat the armies of Antichrist, who at that point will be about to destroy Israel. We're told that the kindreds of the earth shall wail. You see, Israel are going to suddenly realize that Jesus is their Messiah, and will mourn on account of the fact that they rejected and crucified him. So what we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, we read, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look on me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is bitterness for his firstborn. A very clear explanation that Israel's eyes will be opened and they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And then we're told, I am Alpha Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. See, John is about to record his vision. He's giving us his introduction. He's going through the greeting, the salutation. And it's almost about, he's about to pen now the revelation that he's seen and it seems as if God suddenly interrupts. Jesus interrupts. Because this is now God speaking. It's Jesus speaking. It's not John just writing this. It's, it's like God interrupts John as he's writing this for us and makes his statement, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And I think there's a reason that Jesus makes this point for us. We'll talk about it when we get there. Now, interestingly, Isaiah 41, 4, 44, 6, and 48, 12, and various other scriptures, a number of scriptures, they speak about God being the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And saying that, you know, just read Isaiah 41, 4, it says, Who has roared and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. In Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. You know, so many times in the Old Testament, God makes this statement, he's the first and the last. And we find now, Jesus is making that statement. Well, if God is the first and the last, and beside him there is no God, and Jesus now comes along and says that he is the first and the last, how can we reconcile those two? You can't have two firsts and two lasts. The only way you can reconcile it is if Jesus is God. These are wonderful scriptures to show to Jehovah's Witnesses when they turn up on your doorstep. Because this is a bold statement that Jesus Christ is God, manifest in the flesh. In verse 11, 
Jesus claims this title for himself. And here he uses it as well. Okay, so that brings us to this vision of Jesus. We're not going to go through this this morning, but I just want to give you just an introduction to this. Because in verse 9, I, John, now seemingly getting back on, because Jesus, it seems, has just interrupted John and given us that incredible statement. So John says, it's me again, I'm back. John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, it's really easy to read this and move straight on. But there's an awful lot here we need to just think about. See, John had served faithfully as an apostle of Jesus throughout his life. Called as probably just a teenager, as a young fisherman. He spent his lifetime following Jesus. He'd seen Jesus crucified. And then he was one of the two that had gone that morning to the tomb. John had outrun Peter, if you remember. He gets to the tomb, but he doesn't want to go in. doesn't want to defile himself. Peter not worrying about any of that because he'd also denied Jesus. So he was, as far as he was concerned, he was defiled anyway. Peter goes straight to the tomb. And then John goes and sees the place where Jesus' body had laid. And then John is one of those that are in the upper room when Jesus appears to them. And John again, one of those at the Sea of Galilee after Jesus had risen and they have breakfast with Jesus. And John, there at the ascension, seeing Jesus go up to heaven. John is the one who records in his gospel Jesus' words, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you to myself. John wrote that, no doubt. At the ascension, John is thinking these things. As Jesus is going away, John is thinking, but Jesus said he's going to come again to receive us. At the time of his ascension, Jesus himself said, I will come again in like manner. Jesus ascended into the clouds. When he comes back for his church, it will be in the clouds. But John, after all this, seemed destined to live out his life in solitude as a slave to Rome on account of his witness to Jesus. He already said that he'd been exiled to Patmos because he was a Christian, because he proclaimed the word of God, and because he was an eyewitness. You see, there was a lot of Christians by the, the time that John is at this point. But John was an eyewitness. And that was a real problem for Roman authorities. You know, they could talk to the others and say, well, did you see Jesus? And some of them would say, well, no, I, I heard about him. But And of course, for Christians, they'd have known the reality of the relationship with Jesus. But John walked with and saw Jesus. He was one of that 12. But now he's kind of put out of the way. And no doubt John would have been thinking, Lord, why? Why am I here? Why have you allowed me this situation to spend my days here? I want to serve you. I want to do so much more for you. And I find myself on an island, a remote island. But you know, it's in those darkest of times that God speaks. David must have wondered what had happened to God's promises. You know, he'd been destined to be king. He'd been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. And all of a sudden, he finds himself forced to flee from his family and his home. He finds himself, finds himself climbing out of a window. This is the one who had killed Goliath, who had led the armies of Israel, running away, fearing for his life. And no doubt, burning inside with his call to serve God in a greater way, and him finding himself living amongst Philistines and pretending to be mad. And no doubt, David must be thinking, what is happening to me? Why is God allowing all of this? And yet, in those darkest times for David, God speaks to him. And some of the most incredible psalms we have, and psalms where David speaks prophetically, and when he was in his darkest times. And some of those prophecies that come from David's pen speak through to the time of the crucifixion and far beyond. They speak through to the time that Jesus, as we saw this morning in Psalm 2, will be the one who will rule with a rod of iron. Think too of Elijah, we studied in the book of Kings. He'd loved the Lord from his youth and finds that the nation has turned away from God. Knowing the prophecies of scripture, he walks straight into Ahab with his declaration there's not going to be any rain for three and a half years. And walks out again. Incredible boldness. But again, knowing what God had promised in his word. And God raises him up as a result of this and uses him very mightily. And we know the situation on Mount Carmel. But then he finds himself fleeing for his life. Having birds bring food for him and drinking water from a stream. And then ends up down at Sinai. 
thinking, what has become of me? I thought I was going to be serving God. I thought that's what God had called me to. And it's alone at Sinai that we find there's that earthquake. There's the wind, there's the fire. But then comes that still small voice of God. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again he asks him, what are you doing here? Just helping Elijah to think back to his calling. And then Elijah goes back and we see him mightily used of God again. But you know, it's in those dark times, just like John on Patmos, that God gives these incredible visions. And there's so many of these in scripture, you know, you could consider Daniel taken from his home as just a, a teenager, probably about 14 years old, to this mighty city of Babylon. Isaiah is another one that prophesies through one of the darkest times in, in Israel's history. And what we understand is that he was sawn in half by King Manasseh. Jeremiah, what a story Jeremiah's life is. It really is kind of ministry in the mire. Ezekiel, another one, taken from his home. And yet those individuals, God speaks to them. Think of the things that Daniel recorded for us, the prophecies, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. You know, when God gets us alone, and there's nothing else, when it just seems like all around us there's problems and pain, well, that's when God's voice can be heard. You see, God revealed incredible prophecies to these men in what seemed to them their darkest times. It was C.S. Lewis that referred to pain as a megaphone. It effectively allows us to hear God's voice. And so it seems to be here with John on the island of Patmos. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. That Lord's day, not Sunday, some people think it's a reference to the first day of the week, but in scripture the first day of the week is always referred to as the first day of the week. This is not that. This is the day of the Lord. This phrase that we find in the Old Testament. John is saying, I was in the spirit and the day of the Lord, on the Lord's day. And it's interesting because at that time in Rome, historians tell us that they celebrated Emperor's Day to proclaim the might of the emperor and to celebrate his reign. John, no doubt, aware of the power of the Roman Empire at that time, this wasn't the Emperor's Day, this is the Lord's Day. This is when the Lord is coming to reign, to establish his kingdom. And John is here, moved to move forward in time to see the vision he now records. And that's what we're going to look at next week. I encourage you to read ahead because next week we come face to face with the glorified Jesus. So please read ahead and come prepared. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your words. Stir our hearts, we pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this revelation that we might know Jesus better. Oh, Father, fill us with just a joy. Lord, not a transient joy that the world would sometimes refer to as happiness. Lord, we don't want to be happy, Father. We want a joy that pervades and passes any test that's put to it. A joy, Lord, because we know that in the final analysis, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will sit on the throne of David. And that we have been called to be kings and priests. Lord, speak to us through this wonderful book, we pray. May we love Jesus more. We ask in his precious name. Amen.